Hi, everybody. This is Mark Cockrell, one of the owners of the Element OP production company and the producer of this show. And I just want to uh, take a moment to tell you that this, what you're about to hear is the last episode of the EduMatters podcast, uh, at least for a while, uh, perhaps indefinitely. Uh, in the, the recent weeks, both of our hosts, uh, you'll notice Brian is not available uh, on this show. And uh, he has uh, had some things come up in his life that have caused him to have to step away uh, from this podcast. And uh, the same is true for Christy as well. She was, uh, uh, you'll hear in the show, even at the end, she says, we'll see you next week. She had intended uh, to continue on, but things just didn't quite work out that way. So uh, at this point, the show has no hosts and um, obviously cannot continue. So uh, it's been fun doing this uh, between the, uh, you know, recently rebranded EduMatters and the previously Tightwad Tech. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a couple of hundred of you out there who are, uh, uh, regular listeners, and we appreciate your time, and we have enjoyed being a part of your life uh, these last uh, couple of years. Uh, but it's time for this show, uh, at least in its current um, iteration, to uh, be put on the shelf for a while. Uh, having said that, if anybody out there listening um, is interested in hosting a show, if you are a passionate educator and a skilled communicator, and you have some time to invest. It's not uh, an easy thing. We don't just come here every week and uh, laugh on air for uh, 50 minutes or so. Uh, there's a lot of pre-work uh, that goes into it, and um, there's more to it than most people think. And and I certainly thank Christy and Brian uh, and uh, John uh, and, and Sean and everybody who's been a part of this show in the past. I, I, I greatly appreciate their time and their energies and their effort that they have put into this show. But uh, most good things come to an end. And the fact is that it's, uh, at, least at, the, at least for now, this show is coming to an end. So uh, if you uh, don't want to see that happen and are willing to step up and do something about it, let me know. And I'm certainly willing to continue producing the show and, and we can talk about it. But until then, thanks for having been a listener. We hope you enjoy uh, what turned out to be our last show with the very interesting Beth still. And um, thank you for being a listener, but most importantly, thank you for being an educator. Thank you for dedicating your life to something greater than yourself. Um, our future depends on you, and we appreciate you greatly. Goodbye for now. Shed the days like skin, pray for evenings in. Hold their hands in the street when you walk them off to school. A box too full to shut, a cardboard paper cut, the bleeding edge of a picture of your parents when they were cool. Welcome to Edu Matters, where education matters. Brought to you by Element OP Productions. Elements. Opie.com. And now, here are your hosts, Christy Vincent and Brian Brueger. Welcome to the Edge Matters Podcast, Episode 10, the alternate proposal for September 18th, 2012. I am your host, Christy Vincent. Tonight, we are joined by a special guest, Miss Beth Still. 
and the Element OP producer Mark Cockrell. Brian Brueger cannot be with us, but he is certainly out there somewhere on the East Coast. We're sure we're wrecking havoc on poor people, so he's in our thoughts. Howdy, Mark. Not rich people, just poor people. Just poor. If 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 Brian's around on the slate at night, I'm thinking they're poor in some form. They're poor in spirit. They're poor in love. So it's sort they're of needing the, him. He's the reverse um, Robin Hood. He, exactly. He berates the poor on behalf of the rich. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Oh, so he's a politician. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. And from Florida, I'm sure there's a hanging Chad somewhere. <laughs> And with all this funness, we have the great, the amazing Beth Still. Good evening, Beth. Hi, Christy. How are you tonight? Hi, Mark. Greetings. He always says greetings from his little pod pod. We we don't know what that's about. We just smile and nod a lot. Okay. Well, it's it's hot here in Texas. What you got up in Nebraska? Oh, um, it's a little bit drizzly. Uh, first time I've seen any sort of precipitation in probably six months or so. Um, it got pretty hot today. It was in the 90s, so it was a little humid, but it's nice and cool right now, and there's a little bit of a breeze, so I can't complain. Sounds like a good night. I can't really complain too much around here. Wait. My mic hates me most nights, and tonight's one of those nights. But we, we can't complain about the weather. It's nice here in Texas, and I get to speak on behalf of Texas since, you know, I'm still lamenting Mark leaving us I, I think alone. the state will recover. I really do. I'm not so sure. <laughs> really not so sure about that one, Mark. Anything overly invigorating about your great and wonderful warm-up tonight? Yeah, I'm talking to well, you, Mark. Uh, we, although this is uh, going to come out next week, we are recording this on September 11th, so I think it's uh, worth taking a moment to remember the fact that 11 years ago, some really bad people did some really bad things, and it brought out the best in us all. And that's what I choose to remember. Amen. Had a very interesting conversation with my 10, almost 11-year-old on the way to school today. I was pregnant with her this time 11 years ago for the, the attacks on the World Trade Center. And, you know, it's foreign to her. She literally wasn't around. She wasn't on the planet. We had a very long discussion, and it's been very interesting for me. This is the first event in my lifetime that I can have this moment. I wasn't around when Kennedy was an assa- was assassinated. I, I don't have that memory. I don't remember when someone walked on the moon. So I don't have those instances. But this, this I was there, and I, I very much remember everything about that day. And to have that conversation with her in the way that the perspective has changed. She was, she's a pretty smart girl. Really, really love her. She's real, real smart, real sharp little gal. But her knowledge of it is New York City. She wasn't aware of the other pieces. So we, we went to great lengths explaining that. And we talked about some of the fanatics that, that came out of it. And then I dropped her off at school and I had some stuff to do over at the middle school. And I'm in an eighth grade class. And it happens to be an American history class. And they only, um, in, the, in that class, they only cover up to Reconstruction. But the teachers were going to great lengths to kind of explain about what the day was. And I was rather shocked that these kids that are anywhere from 
you know, 13, 14 years old, they were, they were toddlers, preschoolers, some would say at the time, but they have little knowledge and to sit in that room and listen to them talk about, oh, that's history. I don't remember that. Oh, my mom's talked about that once. It was like, oh, okay. One, I'm old. And two, this is my, yes, this is why we don't need textbooks because not one textbook in that school addressed this, of course at all it just it's my, not there my oldest daughter is almost 10 and her uh summary of what they covered at school about it today was there was a video and it was really long and that's that's what she had to say about it that makes me sad what's your recollection miss beth um i was just Finishing up my last year of college at that point in time, um, to, you know, for my second career, and I, my youngest daughter was in kindergarten, and so we talked a little bit today about what she remembers, and she remembers actually quite a bit. Um, but my students, who are the same age as her, um, and then a little bit younger, they don't really remember much at all. So we talked about it a little bit today, but. Um, Due to some things last week, we were kind of falling behind our schedule anyway. So we didn't get to spend a whole lot of time on it. But it is, I was just thinking how really the students I have right now will be the last ones that have any real memory of it at all. Next year, they'll all be, you know, they would have been too young to remember any of it at all. You, you talk about your students. For those that, that don't know you, who, who do you teach, what age, what grade, and where? Well, obviously, I'm from the Cornhusker state, um, but I'm in the far western reaches of the state. I am just about 30 miles east of Wyoming. Uh, we're almost on the Wyoming border, and I teach social studies to um, mostly juniors and seniors. We have a few sophomores at my school, and I have what I think is one of the most unique teaching positions in the whole world. I teach at an alternative high school, and I teach face-to-face about half of my um about half the day and we're on just a block schedule and i have about 45 students and then the other half of the day uh, i teach and develop depending on what we're doing that quarter online classes uh, for the nebraska educational virtual academy which is also run by educational service unit 13 which is who i work for and if you don't know what an educational service unit is, um, I don't know what they have in Texas, but a lot of states have what they call a BOCES. It's just, it's a service unit um, that provides different services uh, to districts, especially smaller districts. And out here we have quite a few um, very small high schools. I know some of the students that take my online classes, they come from classes um, where there's maybe eight or ten kids in the um, their graduating class. So... I don't know if Texas has any schools that small, but uh, that's kind of how we have to run things out here in the prairie. <laughs> in the prairie with the prairie dogs. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have in Texas um, education service centers, which is really funny that you work for 13. We, we've never had this conversation, but I worked for education service center 13 here in Texas, and you work for ESU 13 there yeah. in Nebraska. And I remember when I very first came on on Twitter, 
I saw this this woman who kind of did the same thing I did at another state, and it was the same number and all. And I thought, oh, well, she's kind of cool. Little did I know, she's like my most amazing resource ever. Oh, that's cool. I did not know that. So yeah. is that where you're still today? Or was it, I am uh, not. I'm in a, I've returned. I've left there, and I've went back full-time at a district. Okay. So I, I do love it. But I find that very powerful whenever I'm aggravated and frustrated and I just need that extra, okay, I can get through today. I can make it to the next holiday. I frequent some of your work because I, as a person who doesn't work in an alternate setting, I find some of what you do really amazing that you always have these neat ideas. And I think often we get into this place Sometimes in mainstream education where it's like, oh, that's where we send the, the bad kids. That's where they're, they're gone. You know, we've written them off into that place where in many school districts, they don't even know where, where that place is or who those teachers are. They're just stuck in there to be forgotten about in that corner. And I find it very powerful, the things that you do from your little corner of the world. And I actually wasn't even aware that you taught in an alternate school until very recently because you don't make a point of it. You're not categorizing the kids as those forgotten about. They're just your kids. They're your students. And you you treat them and love them and respect them. And I definitely applaud that and everything that you do. Well, thank you. And I think one of the things that you and I talked about, it wasn't even, I don't think it was quite a year ago. It was probably about eight months ago. Um, There was a blog post I wrote that was pretty powerful um, just about, asking kids what it is they don't like about school and we service there's i think eight now there was six districts last year that sent students to our our physical school that's located on the campus of our local community college but i think there's eight schools now that send kids to us and i make it just one of those things i do a few times a year to ask them not to name teachers but just what are some things that you didn't like about the school you came from? Or what was it about the school that made it to where you just didn't fit there? Because there isn't a one, there isn't one type of student that comes to my school. It's, you know, there's, we have 50 different kids and they all have their own story about why they're at my school. Um, quite a few of them, I'd say at any given time, probably 30% have their own children, uh, both boys and girls. They're already parents. Some of them as young as um, 16. Uh, So that's why some of them are there. Quite a few of them have to work to help pay the bills in their house. So that's why some of them are there. And other ones, I'm not going to lie, a lot of them are discipline problems. And the schools just want them out. The teachers have had enough of them. The administrators have had enough. So they send them to us. And Sometimes they make it and sometimes they don't. But those that really want to finish their education um, stick it out and they do what they have to do. And I think just part of being able to be flexible and fill their needs and let their voices be heard, I think, is really one of the most important things that we do. And it's nothing, it's not a big deal. It's just we help them find their voice. And and what does that mean for for students who they're not the mainstream, they're not the you know the all American whatever fill in the blank whatever that means to you with the the straight A and the over involved parent. I imagine that many of those children aren't in a 
two-parent household where one parent stays home and takes care of everything and life is great in the land of Oz. Oh, that's Kansas. Sorry. But it's just a, a more difficult situation, if you will. How do they how do they find their voice and when were they ever denied it? Um, I think a lot of times in more traditional high schools, so the local high schools, um, a lot of times they just, they don't give the kids a chance. I'm not going to say to not participate, but once it seems like a student gets on a teacher's bad side, they're always on that teacher's bad side. It's not the next day they start over. And that's just the philosophy that I've always worked with, whether it's been in a traditional, a traditional school or in the alternative setting. It's just, we may have had a bad day today, but tomorrow we're going to start fresh. I'm not going to hold against you uh, the fact you yelled at me or screamed at me or dropped the F-bomb in my class. It's, you know, it's tomorrow's a new day. And just really by giving them a voice in our school, it's as simple as just asking them uh, how they feel about anything. Um, lots of times we just have discussions. I know last year I showed the um, Sir Ken Robinson video about how schools kill creativity. And we spent two days, which really is the equivalent of four hours, talking about what schools are doing wrong and what schools are doing right and what types of things students would like to do and kind of some things they want to participate in. So it's just a matter of them having a voice. Um, I'd really say the project that they kind of worked on, it was unofficial. They're one of the schools that sends students to our school. In fact, they make up about half of our base of kids. They have about 25 slots in our program. They are going to be pulling out most of their slots at the end of this year. And there was a real scare there for a few months, probably four or five months last year, that our school would not be able to uh, keep going without those slots. So a lot of the kids uh, came together, tried to get the word out to the public, really about what our school was all about. And they made some YouTube videos, they made a Facebook page, and they just kind of made this whole social media campaign to help save our school. And I don't know really if it worked, but it kind of just showed the community and the school board how much the students really care about their school. And I don't think they would have uh, done that if they'd been in a traditional setting. They wouldn't have stepped up and, you know, tried to save their school because they really, most of them have a very negative opinion about education. Schools and teachers are not they're, they don't want to be in school. They don't necessarily like teachers when they come into this. Uh, and we're in the third week of school now. And some of the uh, brand new students, just today, I saw them kind of soften up a little bit in class. They're kind of able to let their guard down a little bit now that they've we've developed kind of this atmosphere of trust where, you know, they know I'm going to treat them with dignity and respect. And they just, they just know at our school that's how they're going to be treated. And I think a lot of teachers take the approach of students need to respect them just because they're the adult in the room. And our school, and I think a lot of alternative schools, take the approach of treating students more like they're adults. We're on a first-name basis with our students. Uh, they get to call me Beth. They get to call the principal Kent. He's not Dr. McClellan. He's Kent. And the other teachers, you know, it's a first-name basis with them, too. Uh, 
which I was totally opposed to. When I first started teaching there, my mind was kind of still in a traditional mindset. And I thought that was going to be a complete disaster. But I really think that that helps kind of just cement those relationships with the kids that they're not used to having with teachers. I I find that very interesting where, um, you know, we're in the, in the South, <laughs> we're very much <laughs> hung up on that. It's, it's yes, ma'am and no ma'am and yes, sir. And no, sir. And I would, I really and truly believe I would smooth pass out of one of my children called, you know, one of my friends or something by their first name. And sometimes it, it is a first name. It's, you know, Mrs. Mary or Mr. Joe or, or whatnot, but we we really are kind of hung up on that mentality, especially in the schools. And I don't I don't know where it started. I don't I don't know, but it has kind of created this hierarchy of I'm a somebody and you're a nobody, and it's because I said so. And I don't I don't know I don't I don't think it's really working for us, you know. Yeah, I don't think it is either. Uh, and. I realize there's there's a lot of teachers who kind of look at that like, well, you know, I'm the teacher. The student should respect me just because I'm the teacher and they shouldn't be on a first name basis. And there have been times when the students have, you know, I think kind of looked at that. Oh, well, we're on a first name basis. That means we're friends. And you still have to draw that line and make sure the students understand that you're there. You're there to help them. You're there to be their teacher in an all-dead all setting. We wear so many hats. We're the counselor. Lots of times, like you said, they don't come from homes where both parents are there. So lots of times we're kind of playing that surrogate parent. Uh, lots of times, you know, it's more like offering them advice, you know, just about any number of different topics that I think in a more traditional setting, you just don't ever talk about those things. Um, but no, I just back to the respect issue. Just I think really the first name basis is something that I think if a lot of if more teachers were open to that, and of course it has to be across the school. And I can't imagine that there's too many schools where everybody can agree that maybe a first name basis is the way to go. I just I don't see that happening. Do you? Oh no, especially especially <laughs> not down here. <laughs> <laughs> where we make national court cases out of whether children say yes, ma'am, or not. But but I, I don't mean to be contrarian, but I... I yes, you do. Uh, well, okay, so I do. So <laughs> I mean to be contrarian. Uh, so uh, I think it's really... Um, if I ran the world... Oh, We'd all be in a lot of trouble, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think it's really sort of the 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 other way around. Instead of uh, students calling teachers by their first name, teachers could should call students sir and ma'am. I, I think that the that overall our society has lost uh, the respect and dignity it once had. If you watch. Uh, old movies, um, uh, you know, period pieces. I mean, or if you read books, uh, uh, literature written from, you know, just just a hundred years ago, or 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 you know, uh, not even that far back. You you hear, you know, twenty year old college students referring to each other as as Mister and Sir, and and you know, it. I think, I think we've gone the wrong way with it. That we have coarsened our entire society. And yes, I do understand the the inequity created there. And you're trying to build a relationship that is more than um, a uh, master 
student sort of situation. And I get that. And I understand that where you're going there. But I think that maybe if I were running things, the better way to do it, instead of lowering yourself to their level, raise them up to your level and treat them as sir and ma'am and Mr. Kensington and Mrs. Johnson. And I think sometimes I do catch myself doing that during the day. Um, if a student has a question, I'm like, yes, ma'am. You know, and it's not like in a sarcastic way. It's just kind of like, you know, yes, sir. What can I help you with? Um, and I don't really, I don't know if I've ever really even thought about it until just now about what you just said. But I do call them sir and ma'am sometimes. But I have never in my entire life had a student say yes, ma'am, ever in nine years of teaching it's just i think that's more definitely of a regional thing and i grew like i said i grew up in texas and i remember that's just how we spoke to our teachers in florida as well but um not up here it's just something you don't ever hear you see my children at home call me sir but i call them ma'am i have three daughters and and they are they're ma'am uh, and I, I just um <laughs> Maybe I'm a throwback to a, an older time, but uh, I think that uh, it's more important to treat, uh, to teach them the importance of being treated with respect and how to treat people res with respect than to level the playing field. But again, you know, they're in a loving household with two parents and more food than they need to eat, and and you're dealing with an entirely different uh, uh, subset of kids. So I'm not trying to say you're wrong. I just thought it was an interesting thing to discuss and i will go back to moving knobs and widgets now <laughs> one of the interesting things i've seen here on our camp our, our district our district is very large and we're not a split district i, I don't mean to use the terminology but different geographically we're literally split down the middle by the main highway that goes through the county and one side of our district had just the way geography works out one side is a little more economically disadvantaged. It's very minority concentrated. We have a lot of ESL students over there. The other side of the district, it's the more economically advantaged student, not that we have millionaires in the community by the, by the mounds or anything, but there's definitely a different makeup on both sides. But what I've seen from some of my teachers on both sides of the district, and I've never seen it until this year, the teacher stands at the door, and as the students come in the door for every single class, every single day, they shake their hand. Welcome to class. Good to see you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. And it just creates this culture in the classroom where it's kind of like what Mark was referencing. It's very interesting being in that classroom. There's a whole heightened feel of we've got work to do. We're important. It's important that we're here. It's not this hierarchy of, you know, I'm the god of the classroom. It's, excuse me, Mr., you know, whatever, or Mrs. So-and-so, can you X, Y, Z? And that statement could be coming from teacher or student directed at anyone else in the classroom. And the kids, what I've noticed in there, the students treat each other with that same mentality. So it's not just a reflection that they're giving back to the instructor. It's actually the way they treat each other. And to follow those same children into other classrooms, it's just unbelievable. The difference that that standard, that norm is set just by a simple, a simple gesture. Thank you. Welcome to coming class. Good to see you, sir. And it's handshakes. I've ne never seen anything like that that just has the impact that it does here. And is it school-wide? Is it 
just kind of something that all the teachers do every day? No. Or is it? It's just teachers. teachers here and there, and they've decided that that's, you know, kind of the norm for their classroom. And I think that's what makes it really stand out is I can follow those same students and see them in other parts of the school. And they just have a different aura about them than when they're in that class where this standard of respect is set. Well, and I think it just goes back to if we show the kids respect, that's what they're going to show. You know, it's just it, that only makes sense. And I think um, that's why so many of my kids come to my school just angry. And it takes them a while to get past that anger because they're just so used to being in a system. And it's not any particular school. It's really just schools in general. But I guess I talk to my students about it more just because, you know, they still have a year or two of schooling left when they come to my um, to my alternative ed school. And they're very honest. Uh, that's what I've noticed about alt ed kids probably more than any other group. They're not really afraid to hold back uh, what they're feeling. And they will, if you ask them, you have to be prepared for their answer because sometimes it's not pretty. Um, but anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so you do get a, a couple of new kids, I'm sure, every year. It's not, um, I'm thinking that your kids don't hang out for five, six years. You're not raising these from babies on up. So <laughs> Some of them do. <laughs> we had one. Um, bless his heart. He was uh, here in Nebraska. Uh, I think, and it might depend on the school, but I think the students need 200 credits to graduate. So, by our rules to come to our school, um, students actually have to apply to uh, come into my school, and they're supposed to have 100 credits under their belt by the time they come to us, because they shouldn't need to be at our school for more than two years. Because, in theory, there are teachers who can repeat. Basically, we teach four different classes a year. Uh, we're on a nine-week um, schedule. So if a student has been with us two years, by the beginning of that third year, they might be repeating some material. And they really shouldn't be. They're not mature enough, really, to handle the program until they have 100 credits. And, of course, if they fail a class here and a class there, that might put them back a year in their repeating material. But um, they, no, they're mostly, a lot of students come to us and they only need maybe... 20 or 30 credits so they're just with us one or two quarters so you're certainly used to and accustomed to the whole idea of introducing new ones into your your community that you've kind of built there in the classroom oh definitely um every nine weeks we have a graduation ceremony and those students who have met the graduation requirements we just have a little ceremony at our school it isn't a huge you know it's not more than maybe four or five students every quarter um and then new ones will come in to fill their place and really it's just kind of an in and out every nine weeks we have new ones come in beth do you need so. to catch that train should we should we wait for a moment? <laughs> i think it's louder on your end than it is on mine because i have my <laughs> earbuds in so <laughs> believe it or not that train is about two miles away from my house so imagine trying to sleep with that happening every night <laughs> i grew up um you know, they, they say on the wrong side of the tracks. I was like 40 feet away on the wrong side of the tracks. When the train came through, my house shook. So yep. uh, I, I know that uh, very well. I was I was literally not more than 50 feet away from the train when it came by. 
Yep, the first house I lived in after my husband and I got married, same thing. We were the closest house to the tracks. Um, I could throw a football from our bedroom window to the train tracks, and I can't throw a football very far. And the, I remember the first night it came through, I think I stood up in bed, literally stood up, because I thought the train was going to hit the house. And, wow. and we had never really thought, oh, well, there's going to be trains that come by here all night long when we rented that house. And we were only there a few months because we really couldn't. It was difficult. I mean, two miles, this is what it sounds like. And, you know, 50 feet, it's awful. But trains are all over Nebraska, so we can't get away from them. So there's trains and corn in Nebraska. Got it. And sugar beets. Sugar, sugar beets? Sugar beets. That's like, that's our, one of our biggest industries here are sugar beets. Um, I wouldn't suggest eating them like you can like suck on sugar cane, but a lot of the sugar in our stores actually comes from the sugar beet fields. They're, they're these big things. They look like turnips, but they're somewhat bigger. They're probably four or five times the size of a turnip and they process them and get the sugar out. And every few years, the sugar factory is about three miles from my house and about every 15 years or so, uh, they have a pretty violent explosion there. The sugar beet dust is very volatile, and if it gets just out of whack a little bit, it usually blows the side off of the building where they're processing the sugar beets, and it, it makes quite a mess. The things I did not expect to hear today, <laughs> the sugar beet dust is volatile. You I, know, Mark, the things I learn on this show about geography, importing, exporting, and economics... It just totally messes with my world. Well, you just learned last week that Canada is a whole country. So, you know, the bar is fairly low. Well, now wait. I also learned an alternate spelling of Florida a couple months ago. Of Florida? Uh, yeah, you need to go back and listen to the episode, The Male Kindergartner Teacher, oh, and okay. understand that the rapper Flo... Rinda oh, okay. is from Florida. <laughs> Still haven't lived that one down. No, it's all good. So anyway, tell us more about uh, creating online curricula. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, the school that I teach for, the face-to-face -face school, um, serves, like I said, it serves six districts around the immediate area of Scotts Bluff. And Educational Service Unit 13, there are 21 member districts. So in around 2006, the director of the service unit had some meetings with the area superintendents, all 21 of them, and they wanted to come up with a way for the service unit to serve the needs of their, kind of their alternative education type needs. And the idea was born to start basically a virtual high school where we would create courses, just general content area courses, um, U.S. history, world history, uh, English 9 and 10, some basic math and science classes that we would then offer to students for a variety of reasons. They might have had a schedule conflict. They might need to take the course for credit recovery. So five years ago, I think it was um, four years ago, we created those courses 
And ever since then, there have been a few students every quarter that take most of the classes. Uh, we've developed a few new ones since then. I have a geography course I offer now. Um, I created a digital tools course, just blogging, wikis, that type course that students can take. Um, but we're competing. The state of Nebraska has decided, If I hope I have my facts straight here, but they want to go with a, more of a the STEM type curriculum for the official Nebraska online high school. And we're hoping ESU can somehow filter into that and maybe offer more of the um, elective type courses to kind of balance out the science and math curriculum. But it's it's been really interesting because we kind of, we knew a little bit about Moodle. Uh, I had been using Moodle at that point for probably three years. So I had a pretty good grasp on how to use it. But we searched for a very long time to find classes that were already created, ready to go, that we might be able to purchase and just use kind of straight out of the box. And we just couldn't find what it was we were looking for. So we decided the best way to do it was just create it from the ground up. And it took, we found really, we started in June of 2008. And I think by the first part of July of that year, we realized it was going to be a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. Creating an online course isn't easy. There's so many other aspects you have to think about. I mean, when you're teaching a class face-to-face -face and something isn't going right, you can change direction immediately or, you know, you can tweak what you're doing or add something else or change it for the next class. But with an online class, you don't really know what those changes are going to need to be. And it's kind of hard to gauge the pace for the class. That was kind of the biggest obstacle, I think, the first year was we way overestimated how much students were going to be able to do uh, during the semester. And a lot of the students don't have access to technology outside of school. So if they were sick or missed school for, you know, more than two or three days, it was really difficult for them to get caught up because they just didn't have any place to go to make up their work. And it was all um, based out of Moodle. So if they didn't have an internet connection, that really kind of slowed them down a little bit. So uh, the classes that you, the courses that you created, are they uh, released openly or are they uh, sub private to your school? Well, they're really private to our school. Uh, what the, 19, I believe it was 19 out of the 21 districts. What they did was they, ESU kind of, they started this consortium where the schools who wanted to be part of the consortium paid a certain amount per year for membership in that. And that gave their students access to the classes. If there are teachers who want to take the courses and use them, either parts of the classes um, or use them the whole class, uh, they're welcome to anything that we've created there. Um, don't tell anybody this, but I speak parts of my classes out to people every now and then uh, if they want to see it. I know there's some people in Texas over in um, White Oak, Texas, who kind of like some of my Moodle stuff, and we've actually shared courses with them. They've uh, sent us some of the courses their teachers have created, and I think we've sent them a math class, if I'm not mistaken. 
but yeah don't uh, worry nobody listens to this show so uh, <laughs> okay. your oh yeah safe. i forgot we were recording i shouldn't have said that no. <laughs> <laughs> um no i really would like to see us share openly but since schools are paying a, a pretty good chunk of change we can't just zip copies of the classes to anybody who wants it but you know if somebody's willing to you know say hey i've created this you know can i have your class if i give you this one i mean if we can trade like that i'm open for that um i think there's a lot to be said for sharing content that we create i think really if i have something fantastic in a u.s history class and there's a teacher that maybe that's their weakness i would much rather see them use something really good and it's it's really for the kids um and if there's an area where I'm weak, I'm always looking for stuff like in World War II. There seem to be so many people that that's kind of their niche and that's what they love. And they have so many resources that that's kind of where Twitter comes in. I like to go to Twitter and ask for resources. And so many of the things that I've created, I'm using resources from other people. I rarely have an original thought or lesson plan. So I kind of feel bad about not sharing openly, but... Usually, if people ask, I'll I'll find a way to get them the materials if they need it. Mark Mark has been laughing at me while I run from large crickets and roaches, but and, and that was kind of where I was when I first started in Moodle too. Was this whole idea of this open source thing, right? I'd heard that term, this open source thing, which to me at that time meant free and everything's there. I just have to get it which we all know that that's not what it is by any stretch of the imagination. But I didn't understand, and still really don't to a large degree, this idea that I've created it and it's mine. And if you have something, oh well, and I'm not sharing my stuff with you. So I really like the idea that you're open to, you know, at least the idea of sharing ideas or pieces together. That's so powerful in what we do every day, I think. Yeah, and there's a... I'm in a, there's a school just north of us, um, in Alliance, Nebraska, and I sh Kevin Honeycutt is going to be one of their keynote speakers in a couple weeks. So one of the sessions that I'm going to do up there really focuses on the why teachers need to be connected and why we need to share. Uh, there's my former principal calls it the kitty in the litter box syndrome. When you have teachers that you know, this is mine, I'm not going to share it, this is my corner of the litter box, you get out. Um, and I don't get that either. In fact, um, this last summer I was visiting with some teachers who were apprehensive about sharing. One lady said, I put so much work into these materials and lesson plans. Why should I just share it with anybody? They haven't done any work, why should I share it? And I'm like, well, they may not give anything back to you. But eventually, you will get something from somebody. It's kind of this idea of, you know, kind of paying it forward. I'm sure not every lesson plan that teacher had, she developed on her own. She probably pieced things together that she had gotten either from the internet or from other teachers. You know, like I said, I don't really have too many original thoughts and ideas. So much of what I do, I just... I piece it together from different places and I'm sometimes I'm not even really sure who to give credit to because I take a little bit from here and a little bit from there and it's just I guess that's just what we do and I think people like us we get that and it isn't hard for us to share but there's still this 
the other side of the coin is there are still so many teachers that have that philosophy that they just, for whatever reason, they just can't give that up. And those are probably the same teachers, and here I gotta get on my soapbox, that can't give up that power in the classroom. They want to be the ones in charge and you know what I mean? I, maybe I'm wrong. Oh, absolutely. And I, I would venture to guess you're exactly correct. You're probably definitely dealing with much the the same type of individual for for both of those instances. It's all about power, power and control in mind. They're all still two years old in their world, you know? Yep. yep. But moving, moving beyond that, back into our happy place and not our soapbox place where I know I could get lost for hours very easily and quickly. I'm sure Mark can attest to, to me and my soapboxes. The other thing that um, we're passionate about besides teaching is ed tech and the, the great mecca for for EdTech, ISTE is coming here to Texas next summer. I'm very excited about that. And two things I want to pick your mind about, Miss Beth. The ISTE Newbie Project for anyone who's going, I don't know, that, that thing's pretty massive. Okay, one, it is. I am a shoe diva, and I will tell you that you should bring at least three pair in your bag at all times. But how do you, how do you get in to this without being so overwhelmed. And you can certainly speak to that as the founder of the Newbie Project. And then what just happened here recently with ISTE? Um, well, just for people who are going to ISTE for the first time, um, you have to do a lot of research ahead of time. And my first ISTE was in 2008 when it was in San Antonio. And the re reason I went to the conference that year actually was because it was in San Antonio. My principal said, I have money for you to travel. He's like, I want you to go someplace where you have to fly. He's like, get out of the region and just find a conference to go to. We'll pay for it. So that's how I ended up at ISTE the first time. And I could not believe the sheer number of people. And I don't think I knew exact numbers until the conference was over, but I think there were 15,000 people there that year. And I couldn't even imagine 15,000 people in one building, but it's massive. And I don't know, you probably know Steve Anderson, Web 2 Classroom. When he came out to Denver, I think his first ISTE was in 2010. He couldn't believe the massive numbers of people. He's like, I knew this was going to be big, but I didn't know how, how big. So that's just something to prepare for. And lots of times when people ask me what they can do, I'm like, research where your hotel is, number one. I mean, there. I think housing opens on the 7th. You definitely don't have to wait until November 7th to, uh, get your, to make your housing reservations. Uh, looking at housing on your own, maybe getting like... We, uh, I've rented out a bed and breakfast and I'm sharing that with about 15 other people. Uh, and if you don't have 15 people to go with, maybe just finding a hotel on your own really is almost cheaper than going through their official housing um, service. Uh, but research where your hotel is in relation to the convention center. Make sure it's on, um, most of the times they'll have buses running, but some of the hotels that are closer to the convention center you don't have the opportunity to take a bus. Um, just know how even just as something as simple as the most affordable way to get from the airport downtown. That's something a lot of people don't really think of. 
um, until they get to the airport. And then they might have sticker shock. I know they did in Denver when they found out the um, cab ride was, I think, a $70 or $80 flat fee from the airport downtown. So there's just lots of little things to um, think about. And I would definitely uh, encourage people, and I think this is what you meant when you said what just happened with ISTE, the um, proposals to present at ISTE just opened up um, in the last couple of days. I think it may have been two days ago when it opened. And I think um, they allow about a month to get proposals submitted. I don't remember the exact dates. But a lot of people, their first time at ISTE, they don't think they should put in a proposal. And anybody can present at ISTE. There's a lot of people who kind of get discouraged that might be longtime ISTE goers who their proposals have been accepted in the past and then they get turned down. And I, I hear a lot of frustration around the middle of December when um, their regrets and acceptance uh, emails go out. And what a lot of people don't realize, and I really myself didn't even realize how competitive the whole process was until this year when I sat on one of the committees that helped um, select proposals to uh, or presenters for ISTE in San Diego this last year was we were given, there was a group of three of us and we were given, I think 17 proposals and we were told pick two, the rest are not going to get accepted. And that's really difficult to do. I mean, there's a rating scale. So the more people can stick to, um, all of the questions that are asked, there's so many different things you have to fill in information for. It's not a lot of information that you have to fill out, but they want, you know, a title and a description and who your co-presenters are, uh, different research that backs up maybe the point that you're trying to make. All of those things are rated uh, using a rubric, and the more points you could hit, the more points you're going to get on the rubric. And that's really how they're scored. And if anything's left off or if the uh, submission isn't complete, it pretty much blows your chances out of the water. So um, just a lot of people ask me, you know, how do you get accepted? And a lot of people think, well, you know, so-and-so, they're a shoe-in because they're a big name on Twitter or everybody knows who they are. And that really doesn't have anything to do with it. So if you're thinking about going to ISTE or if you've never been, but you think your district might send you because you have the chance to present, um, throw your name in the hat. You just, you never know what's going to happen. Oh, very, very good advice indeed. And when you first posted that information out last year after you had done those, those reviews and you kind of gave your reflection, much of it was, you know, what you had just said. I, I really, really enjoyed reading some of that and taking it back with me so that, you know, I could apply this year for SD and hopefully get accepted and, and moving forward in that. And where can we find all of your uber helpful information? <laughs> um, no, Beth still at edublogs.com is my blog. Or um, if you just Googled Nebraska change agent, um, it probably will be the um, top blog that comes up. And I blogged that maybe three months ago, and I don't blog as frequently as I would like to. Um, a lot of times, what I want to blog, I can't publish. <laughs> so, um, I keep some of that to myself, but posts like that, um, I just, I don't have as much time as I used to have. So, uh, but that was one of maybe four or five posts back that I did. And it really, it's not, you know, giving up any secrets of ISTE, but I think it's just 
something that people need to understand is, you know, I'll hear people say, well, I'm never going to go to ISTE again because they just don't care what I have to say. And that's not it. ISTE recruits people like me. Uh, just the people, just ISTE members are the ones who make up those committees that accept and reject proposals. And there are a lot of people who are very active in ISTE who never set foot on Twitter. So they may or may not know who people are. And having a big name, so to speak, doesn't really... I would say it probably doesn't, it doesn't help, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't really do anything if if somebody doesn't know who you are. Even if it's kind of a fairly well-known educational author, I've seen some of those proposals get rejected too, just because maybe the people on the panel don't necessarily know who they are, or their proposal hasn't scored as high as others on there. All very good information, as I'm sure those proposals will start pouring in. For those who would like to present or be a part of that, anyone who's been to a conference like that will encourage you 1,200 times over. Yes, absolutely. You certainly want to to just just try it, be a part of it. And there's something there for everyone. Mark and I definitely come at edu education from different perspectives before he, again, ditched us and went private and went to Atlanta. But for the tech directors, the tech nerds, the edu geeks, there's definitely plenty to to stay on that level. I don't live there. I live in what I call airy fairyland where we get to do fun stuff and we mess with glitter and, and all that type of stuff. And there's something there for that. There's something there for beginners. There's this misconception that these great education conferences, especially those involving ed tech, well, they're only for the super sophisticated. Not by any stretch of the imagination. You'll find many newbie sessions on how to get started with XYZ or how to join this type of a, a social media. In my very first ISTE, I was terrified that I wouldn't know a single soul with 15,000 people there. And I did not. And actually, I posted on Twitter that I was going to lunch and I was very lonely because I don't believe in eating by myself and someone please keep me from starving to death. And lo and behold, somebody that I respect very much, Steve Dimbo, was up in the bloggers lounge, the bloggers cafe. And he said, just come on up. Come on up. We'll, we'll figure something out. And for me, it was kind of like, an aha moment of, did he really just say that? Like, like really? Like Steve Dimbo? I, I just remember looking at a total stranger and going, I think he just said that to me. Like, oh, I'm, I'm running up the escalator backwards at this minute. And you get to have those moments because everyone is so real and so passionate about what they do. You're not going to be left out. Not by any stretch of the imagination. You're going to completely get out of it, whatever it is that you want to get out of it. So we exactly. encourage all of you to come. I'm very much looking forward to sharing oxygen, I say, um, with Beth. We, we've never met face-to-face. -face. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing you, and I can't wait for you to come on down come no, I'm June. So I'm so excited. I can't wait to go to the Riverwalk again and just kind of get back to my old stomping grounds. And um, just, I totally agree with what you said. ISTE is one of those conferences where there's something for everybody. And one of the things that, ISTE's worked really hard on and I, I for the two years in a row I've run one of them um, they have different lounges set up and the bloggers cafe was kind of one of those original type lounges that I think dates back to maybe 2006 might have been the first one but there's the newbie lounge which really the sole purpose of the newbie lounge is so people who are brand new who have no idea what they're doing 
it's just a place for them to go where there's people to help them figure out what to do. I mean, it's as simple as helping people figure out how to read the conference schedule because it's like a textbook when you get it. It's huge. Uh, and just how to navigate that. Uh, the social butterfly lounge is one where uh, they kind of focus, like you said, on different types of media. You know, maybe this hour they're running, a, this is how you use Twitter or this is how you use Skype. And so many people, I think, are intimidated because they think they should already know that, but they don't. I mean, there's a lot of people who go and they don't know those things. And there are so many sessions. And ISTE is really good about marking the sessions, um, kind of what level they're for. So if you're more advanced, there's definitely sessions for that. And if you're just starting out with something, there's sessions for newbies and beginners as well. And then everything in between, of course. So I just, I can't wait. I'm counting down the days. <laughs> Amen. Uh, and just for some perspective, it's still nine months away. So it's not like it's tomorrow. Yeah, just, you know. Only I'm still counting down the days, Mark. Days. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you see, my housing has been reserved, Mark, now for, I think, two months. I was just going to so. say, I'm pretty sure I did mine at least in August. It may have been July. Yeah, it was right around the same time we did ours. So uh huh. <laughs> we understand, Mark. You don't live in our world anymore. This is our <laughs> mecca. This is why we go to work every single day. <laughs> I went Not to ISTE once. All. And we're okay. We're we're ending the show now before before Mark takes us down a, a very dark path in the in <laughs> I the. I just interim. said I went there once. I was that dark. In the interim, should you need to get a hold of any of us, you can find the great, the amazing, the wonderful Beth Still on Twitter. Miss Beth, would you like to provide your Twitter handle? It's very difficult. It is at Beth Still. Very so, hard to remember, indeed. Yep. yep. And I of course, on her blog where she shares all of this wonderfulness, I'm sure that's not a word, but it is tonight, all this wonderfulness and more. BethStill.edublogs.com, the Nebraska change agent. And Mark, since Brian's not here, would you like to go ahead and close out the show for us tonight, dear? Certainly. If you'd like to uh, comment or question or make snide remarks about anything you've heard here tonight, uh, you can do that over at elementop.com, the home base of this podcast. Uh, and you can uh, hop into the forums there. And there is an EduMatters forum, and you can make a, a, a comment there. You can also click the Contact Us button right at the top of the page, and that'll send an email to, uh, to me and to my uh, cohort in the network. And uh, I will forward that on to these guys if, if need be. Or if you'd like to, to be on the show yourself, you can call us at, uh, on our Google Voice line, 559-IAMOPI, and that will... Uh, take you to a Google Voice mailbox where you can leave a message and we will play it on the air. That is both a threat and a promise. And so uh, we encourage you to do that. Uh, we, we like your feedback back. We like knowing what you think. And uh, if you're out there and you want to be on the show or you know somebody that you think we should get on the show, let us know. And the worst they can do is say no once we ask. So that's all I got to say about that. That's Forrest Gump would say. Oh, good Lord. Now the impressions start. We definitely have to end this show. You will have a good night. We will see you next Tuesday, same time, same place, same podcast. Have a wonderful week. And don't forget, shut your face.
And Beth, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. And good start. There goes the day, as it passes, we get the feeling.